Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month, or you can give more. There's different uh, giving tiers, T-I-E-R-S, that you can con- contribute to if you have benefited from this podcast, been blessed been challenged, or you just want to throw some money at it, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw and become part of the Theology in the Raw community. Okay, my guest on the show today is a friend from a distance, Justin Brierly. I have um, known Justin from a distance for quite some time, several years, uh, because I've been a uh, pretty avid listener to his podcast, uh, titled, well, it's, it's called Unbelievable. Uh, it's, a, it's a podcast where he often hosts really engaging, sometimes quite heated conversations between people on different sides of a particular issue. Typically, well, as he talks about in this podcast, uh, the Unbelievable podcast started as a, as a space where atheists and Christians could dialogue. But it's grown into much more than that. There's, he has loads of different kinds of people dialoguing about all kinds of things related to the Christian faith, uh, both atheists and Christians debating whether Christianity is true, um, and also he'll have two Christians debating a particular uh, topic within Christianity. Um, and again, it's, not, it's, it's more than just a debate. It's, it's, uh, it's a uh, dialogue where people are making strong uh, arguments for their position, and the other person's able to respond, and they have a conversation. It's loads of good fun. I was on the Unbelievable podcast a few years ago, but I, I don't like to talk about that because I thought I did an absolutely horrendous job. Anyway, um, Justin is also, so uh, yeah, he's also the author of the book titled Unbelievable, Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian. Um, this book came out a couple years ago. You can check it out on Amazon or where books are sold. And Justin is... I think he kind of sets the tone for how we should moderate these kind of discussions. I've just been such a huge fan of how he's able to have these conversations with such a diverse group of people. So I really wanted to get to know him more and figure out how do you do it? How do you sit there and, you know, uh, navigate these really volatile conversations and do so in such a gracious way. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, the one and only Justin Briley. Okay, I'm here with my friend Justin Briley uh, from the UK. What city are you in right now? Is it Surrey? Is that right? Or... Well, I'm I'm in a county called Surrey, okay. and I live in a town called Woking in in Surrey. Um, and it's, it's it's kind of commutersville for London, so a lot of people who work in the city commute in by train from here. So that's what I do because I because the, the radio studio I work at in, in London is there. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good, though. We, we have the best of both worlds. You're not in the midst of all the crazy Londonness, but <laughs> it's still very, very uh, just a short bus roll, um, you know, train ride away if you want to go in and yeah. do some fun stuff. So you're still, Premier Ra- Christian Radio is still in the same place that I, when I visited four years ago. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, was it that long ago? I can't believe it was that long ago. I know, ago. right? It was June 2016. I, I just thought about that right That's, before you popped on. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, about three and a half years ago. I mean, um, 
funnily enough, so you were on, I think, with Brandon Robertson. Yeah, that's right. I yeah. remember oh, correctly. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, can I say something? What? I think that was, I, I probably give an interview at least a couple times a month, maybe more. Yeah. I think that was the worst <laughs> I've ever done. I woke up, I think I was supposed to meet you at 12. I woke up out of just the most deep jet lag at 1130 and this <laughs> fog hovered in my mind for the next four hours oh, all the way through no, the whole, t- and I look, I, I remember listening to part of it after it was like cringing, like, oh my gosh, it was terrible. Anyway, I just wanted to confess <laughs> no, I, to you. I, well, it didn't come across that way <laughs> wow. to me. I thought you did a good job. Um, I only mentioned it actually, because as it happens, the, the most recent show I just aired on Unbelievable had Brandon on again. Oh, right. And he hasn't been on it since. Um, but that was in conversation with someone you've had on your podcast, David Bennett, oh, um, yeah. who's the author of A War of Loves and is himself a you know same-sex attracted Christian, gay Christian, he would use the terminology. And uh, uh, they, they went on kind of to discuss the kind of side A versus side B kind of way of approaching things. So... So yeah, it was an interesting kind of follow-up in a way to the show that I had you on, you know, three yeah. or four years ago. Well, David's amazing. So that's, yeah, yeah. I'm sure he did a great job. When did that, uh, it'll probably come out, what, in a couple of weeks or so? Or um, It's or already just, out, actually. Oh, it's already just, out. just released. So yeah, oh. so you can get it on the podcast. Uh, and yeah, just look for Unbelievable, wherever you get your podcast from. Yeah. And it's also on our video channel over on YouTube too. Great, I'll check it out. Well, why, why don't we start, let's just go back. How did you get into doing... Um, the unbelievable uh, podcast. I mean, how, first of all, how long has it been going? And then how long, yeah. how did you get into it? Maybe you can describe just what it is for those of us, for those out there that sure, don't know what it is. Sure. Well, I, I think we probably share quite a lot of audience who may well have heard of, of Unbelievable, but the, the, the Unbelievable show has been going since the end of 2005, believe it or not. Hmm. Um, so that's what near, well, it'll be 15 years by the end of this year. Um, it started really just as a radio show. Um, I'd, uh, I was kind of early on in my radio broadcasting career at that point with Premier Christian Radio, one of the UK's only Christian radio stations. And I went to the manager and said, I'd really like to start a show where we bring Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue and debate because we do a lot of good stuff for Christians, you know, uh, resourcing them, encouraging them playing, you know, worship music and all the rest of it. But they're spending most of their lives rubbing shoulders with people who don't agree with them. So could we do something that models how to have those kinds of conversations? And and that was where Unbelievable was born, just mm-hmm. once a week on a Saturday afternoon, where I would sit down with a Christian and a non-Christian. Um, but what kind of really transformed the show after the first couple of years of us broadcasting was when it started podcasting. And we were kind of fairly early adopters on the whole podcasting thing. So I think around 2007, we started to do podcasting. And then we started to draw not just Christians in the UK listening by the radio station, but also a lot of Christians all over the world who started listening, but not just Christians, also non-Christians who tuned in, you know, picked up the podcast because they wanted to hear from, you know, Richard Dawkins or whoever it was, you know, the latest atheist person that I had on the show. And, and so it's, it's become this interesting what one person has described as a demilitarized zone between (laughs) Christians and atheists uh, where we can have these, frank and honest conversations, um, but hopefully ones that shed some light, not just heat. And kind of, um, you know, in co- in contrast to a lot of the way these things happen on social media these days, which can be very uh, non-constructive. So so I um, that, that's been a great blessing. The show has, you know, really grown over the years, especially in podcast terms, you know, picking up lots of new listeners um, along the way. 
and becoming fairly well recognized in Christian and atheist circles as this place for dialogue and debate. And then just recently, we've, we've been able to really um, grow our YouTube channel recently. So we kind of, uh, it, it, we didn't really have a YouTube channel until about mm, nearly two years ago when we kind of started this special season of programs called The Big Conversation. Uh, and that was because we received some funding from the Templeton Foundation and they, uh, we were able to invite some big guests on to debate some really big issues. Um, so we had in the first season people like uh, Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. debating uh, the atheist psychologist Susan Blackmore on do we need God um, for meaning in life. Um, we had people like Daniel Dennett and Stephen Pinker and, and folk like that with people like John Lennox and others. Um, debating these issues and then just recently we've had a second season with some really interesting conversations between people like William Lane Craig and the cosmologist Sir Roger Penrose on God and the universe and that kind of thing and um, yeah uh, we had a, a live one out in California actually um, which was between John Lennox and Dave Rubin who hosts the Rubin Report uh, just looking at um, you know issues in culture and God and atheism and so on. Uh, so yeah, we've had some really exciting shows um, and that's all available from its own sort of uh, kind of website called the big conversation dot show. Mm. But it's also gave us that impetus to kind of start filming a lot more of what we do. And so it's been really uh, encouraging to see the way that's taken yeah. off on YouTube, a, a new audience developing for the show over there as well. Well, the, the, you know, more light than heat, you made a comment about just the tone of the conversation uh, I, I just, you especially model that as a moderator in ways that I, I mean, I don't know anybody else that does it as, as well as you do. Um, but sometimes it does, there are, there are some heated moments <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, in, in the yeah, conversations sure. that make, makes it fun. I'm a huge Dave Rubin fan. I love Dave Rubin. Yeah. So that was a fascinating conversation between him and Lennox. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, it was, I just think yeah. he's such a genuine, um, just human being and just asks really good questions mm -hmm. and is able to dialogue across lines in ways that few people can. So I just really admire that. But Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that one especially. It was very different to a lot of them because mm -hmm. inevitably a lot of them, you've got two people who are essentially on different sides of an argument. And whether it's um, polite or adversarial, they're, they're, they're not in the end going to find that much common ground usually. Mm -hmm. But in that, in that case, it was much more of a kind of gentle exploration of where Dave Rubin is at in terms of his sort of thoughts about religion and Christianity right. specifically. And well, we joked several times, if you've heard, heard it, um, that, that it was almost like a kind of, you know, gr a grill Dave Rubin on his uh, journey <laughs> of faith kind of, kind yeah. of a conversation. <laughs> it wasn't meant to be that way, yeah. but, but, um, but, and he did it very, in very good nature, but he was remarkably open, very mm -hmm. kind of, you know, um, honest about where he's at, um, that he no longer kind of thinks of himself as an atheist and he's definitely open to the idea of God and Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, he's kind of from a Jewish background himself. So, so he said that's where he's been sort of starting his journey of, of kind of rediscovering his, yeah. his Jewish roots. But yeah, it was just a really encouraging kind of conversation. And I think, I think in it, the, the, the live audience dynamic, it was done, you know, as a live show in California kind of, made it that bit more special as well and interesting because you get a slightly different dynamic when you're doing something right. live with an audience as opposed to doing it, you know, in studio. So do, do you yeah. have in all your years of doing this, do you, can you remember like the most heated discussion you had to moderate? Does the uni stand <laughs> out? <laughs> I can, I can, because it's etched in my memory. Um, it's, it was, it was a debate between a, a Christian and a Muslim. 
And those can quite often be, be kind of, you know, quite full on. But this one will kind of overstep the boundary, really, of what was helpful in the end. Um, you'd have to go way back in the archive, I think, to find this one. But basically, it was a contentious topic to begin with, because um, the guy coming on from the Christian side was basically making the case that Muhammad never really existed or not in any way that's <laughs> recognisable with the Quran. Uh, which is always bound to, you know. Um, so maybe it was my fault for for um, setting this one up with with this guy. But it very quickly descended into name calling on both sides, frankly, um, and uh, got very heated. And at one point, I kind of stopped the recording and said, "Look, guys, I can't, we can't continue like this. You know, this is just we. I, if we don't kind of cool down and stop with the kind of the insults and everything, I'll just have to." you know, put an end to this recording. We got through it somehow, but a lot of people after it went out were like, said that was really painful to listen to because <laughs> there's a there's a place for drama yeah. and kind of, and there are some exchanges, you know, we had one recently on this latest big conversation series between AC Grayling and Tom Holland, where it gets quite feisty, but it's kind of, it's yeah. kind of done in a way where there's still, you're still learning. You're still kind of mm. um, hearing a really kind of interesting at the point where people just start breaking down into kind of, yeah. you know, name call, calling and mudslinging. That that's where you realise, okay, no longer useful. So yeah, yeah that, that was a very memorable one, but for all the wrong reasons. I'm afraid. <laughs> I did listen to that one to Tom Holland, uh, parts of it at least, and yeah, it did get you know, pretty intense, but I, you know, I, I spent some time in British, um, academia and it's that, yeah. that's kind of how you guys do it though. You'll, you'll, you'll go after each other really hard. Then you'll hit the pub after. And you're like, well, did you just, <laughs> did you just remember that conversation you had an hour ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I guess, I guess it partly comes from, um, we, we have always had, um, the way our, our whole kind of political system has been set up is kind of adversarial. So it's, it's set up as a debating chamber, essentially our parliament um, with both sides facing each other. And, and in a way that's always been the way that, you know, things have been talked about and gone through and, you know, the, the big, you know, ancient universities all have their debating societies as well, Oxford union, the Cambridge union and so on, where it's very much that's seen as part of the tradition of the British. So I think I think you're right. There is a kind of um, a sense in which people are uh, are willing to kind of have the debate and kind of still be friends afterwards. Most yeah. of the time, they understand that there's a, you know when they're on the, when they're on the platform defending their case. Um, I think that breaks down a bit in the age of social media, though. I think it's much harder to kind of because you're not seeing someone in looking someone in the eye. I think people these days find it harder to debate topics because they're seen as somehow attacking the person. Um, rather than simply debating the ideas. And that's obviously led to a lot of issues um, with, you know, certain people no longer wanting to, you know, on some university forums and so on, really uh, champion free speech and debate because, you know, of safe spaces and the worry that people will be offended and so on. Um, so so I, think, I think it's important to still have these kind of programs where you have that kind of... Uh, that kind yeah. of thing going on. Yeah. Do you have, you've had several, uh, just really good atheist Christian dialogues, debates. Do you have like a favorite and apologetics is kind of more your thing, right? Naturally. Isn't that? Oh yeah. 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 Do you have a yeah. favorite Christian apologist? Um, or somebody that you really <laughs> think just like, if I was going to have one Christian on stage with the best atheist, like who would you want on the stage? 
Well, we've already mentioned his name, but John Lennox is, is amazing. And I think the reason John John Lennox is amazing is because he's both got the intellect, but he's also got the personality where he can, he's got a very winsome way of bringing across things. He's, he's very much a people person. And so you get some apologists who are brilliant in terms of their arguments and their content, but they're kind of like machine guns. You know, yeah. they, they kind of rattle it off and they, they do the debating thing, but they don't really, um, it, it's, it's harder to warm to them personality wise. And that's just, you know, often a personality thing. You know, some people are, are right. kind of those very left brain versus right brain people or whatever. And so for me, um, John Lennox has the best of both. He's, mm. he's a wonderfully brilliant sort of thinker, but he's a great communicator as well. And, and just incredibly personable and knows when to bring in a story or an anecdote, you know, just to kind of lighten yeah. the mood and, and get things moving along. So, so he's, uh, yeah, he's one of my favorite people to have yeah. on. Um, I'm a huge fan as well of, you know, he's one of the big stars in the apologetics world, but, but there are people I love to champion who I think are an amazing up and coming people. Um, Glenn Scrivener. I don't know if you've come yeah. across Glenn, but, um, Glenn was on uh, a recent edition of the show. Again, it was one of our big conversation episodes. Um, de debating uh, atheism with Matt Dillahunty, who's, you know, well-known right. atheist kind of activist out there. And I just think Glenn has uh, just a huge, very, a lot of wisdom, uh, a lot of ability to speak um, really... I think he's really careful with the way he speaks and the kind of people he's and, and anticipating the subjects and so on, but he's just very creative. He's got a very quick mind and he's able to um, make a point that needs to be made in just the right way. Mm. Uh, and so, and, and again, that's that, that, you know, there are lots of good thinkers out there, but not all of them can do that in a kind of yeah. the frankly quite, um, pressured situation of, of a, a studio discussion debate you know and I think Glenn is just a very very good at it so so for me uh, when I discover someone like that I'm like yeah they're going in my little black book of contacts I'll be <laughs> I'll be getting them back again um, because you want pe to find people you know on both sides who are good sure. communicators like that and can can express ideas in, in helpful concise yeah. compelling ways so yeah that's that was good Okay, on the flip side, who is the most compelling atheist? Like when you listen to them, you have to kind of like hold on to your seat a little bit. You're like, uh, yeah, I don't yeah, know what yeah. this guy's gonna might convince me. You know, like uh, both <laughs> both like compelling atheists and maybe what what are some of the top arguments against the yeah. existence of God that yeah, you find yeah. to be wrong? Obviously, but um, thoughtful and compelling. Yeah, no, no, for sure. I mean, again. Um, Someone I've had on again recently on on this big conversation series from Unbelievable, um, uh, Bart Ehrman, yeah. who's a well-known Bible scholar, but who you know famously lost his faith and has written a number of books, kind of questioning the historicity of certain aspects of the Gospels and things like that. Um, and um, and the reason I find him sort of you know one of the more compelling voices, I wouldn't say he described himself as an atheist. In fact, if anything, judging by a recent post he made, quite an interesting one, he mm. seems to have veered even away from agnosticism towards something more like the possibility that there might be a God out there. But, wow. um, but, but in any case, um, that aside, he's on, on the biblical stuff. He obviously knows his stuff, um, but he's also a very gifted communicator again. And that's, that's often the difference. And he's kind of a, a, a debater as well. He's a natural debater. So he's, he's the kind of person where it's not necessarily that there aren't good answers to his objections or his point of view, 
but he's very good at presenting them, defending them, um, making them sound very cogent. He's got a kind of, you know, personable style and everything else. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, again, sort of on the opposite side, he's, he's the kind of the, the agnostic, I suppose, version of a Christian apologist, uh, mm -hmm. for the other side. And, and in that sense, uh, I know that if I bring him on, I want someone who can match him in that kind of way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that would be one example. Um, uh, the thing is, I'm not going to say like a Richard Dawkins because Richard Dawkins, well, he's a very well-known atheist, but I actually, when you get him in conversation, I, I don't think he's actually, I don't think he comes off that well, in yeah. all honesty. He's, he's not particularly, um, it's not particularly convincing, I don't find, yeah. when you've got him up against someone who kind of knows their stuff um and and i would say people who are a little bit more you know media savvy uh in terms of the way they bring their their thoughts and arguments across would would be someone like matt dillahunty who i mentioned earlier mm -hmm. um who kind of knows you know the way to use an interview and how to turn an argument to kind of his advantage and that sort of thing right. so i think he's he's sort of um again he knows how to to do the the debate thing um, to to kind of get his yeah. points across. Well, Bart Ehrman, I mean, he's got this like very calm uh, confidence, you know, when yes. someone like in that dialogue with Pete Williams, and I think Pete Williams is one yeah. of the smartest guys I've ever met. Okay, mm. and so he, it's not like he, <laughs> it was a mismatch at all. But man, mm. the way that uh, Pete Williams would you know raise this seemed brilliant point, right? And then mm. Bart Ehrman's like. Oh yeah, of course, you know, yeah. And just like very casually, calmly, <laughs> confidently say, well, yeah, that's fine. But what about, you know, or, or like the way he was able yeah, to turn it yeah. around or draw out something yeah. and almost, you know, raise that cornering question that, you know, <laughs> sometimes I think Pete fell into it. Sometimes he, he said, well, let me, your that, that question yeah, alone is, yeah, is comes with yeah, premises that yeah. I don't agree with whatever, but that, yeah, that was yeah, a, yeah. That was a really great, almost disturbing conversation because I was like, man, that, he had some really good points. Um, I, yeah, it's funny. I heard um, Richard Dawkins, which I've never read anything by him. I've read just bits and pieces, listened to him maybe for a few minutes. So I know hard. I just know the name, but I heard him on the Joe Rogan podcast, and I was blown away at how uninformed his critiques of Christianity were. It's like. It's almost like he was critiquing some kind of late 1970s fundamentalist, the American evangelical mm -hmm. Christianity, thinking that he's like, and it was so yeah. like really weak, I thought, intellectually. Now, granted, you have two, you know, Joe Rogan's an atheist. He's an atheist, you know, so, you know, it's, it's they're in this echo chamber. But I was like, really, is that, that's your argument? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's like my faith is yeah. so much stronger now after <laughs> hearing the world-renowned Richard Dawkins' voices complaints with the Christian that might be I mean he'd probably spank me in a debate so I don't you know I don't want to I know he's not listening to this but um I, I was shocked at how like I mean just what you said how I was expecting much more intellectually from from him mm. yeah I I, I mean I, I'm not saying there's nothing there and obviously in his field which you know is uh biology uh you know he, yeah. he would spank both of us I'm sure if if we came to doing a debate on it but he because he's waded into the area of philosophy and theology and all of those kind of issues and frankly done a really bad job at all of them you know you read his book uh there'd be red marks all over it if you put it through just a basic mm -hmm. you know philosophy sort of yeah. you know examiner's hands um it's it yeah it 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 does mean that that he's kind of really speaking about things he really hasn't bothered to really investigate or thoroughly mm -hmm. research and to that extent it suffers because of it. So you don't, you, I don't think 
that many people. I mean, I think people who maybe have no no grounding in Christian apologetics or theology might read something like The God Delusion and have their faith challenged because, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's that's kind of what it's there for. But in all honesty, you don't have to do masses of research to see that he's, you know, putting up straw men all over the place and, right. and blowing them down and, and uh, to realise that he, he simply has frankly misunderstood a lot of the arguments he's critiquing yeah. and misunderstands the bible as well on top right. of it so so yeah you're right most of the time what i see him critiquing is a very kind of well i think it's it, you know it's very easy to poke holes and criticize a very wooden literalistic fundamentalist right. type version of christianity and of course in a way he'd like us all to believe that version of christianity because it's so easy to to right. knock over but when he actually meets someone who holds to a something slightly more nuanced or a uh, defensible, um, then it's a bit of a different story. Can you name your number one argument for atheism or whatever, however you want to frame it? I mean, is there, is there one major argument that you're like, this is, this is the best that atheism has? Yeah. I, I mean, inevitably, I think the, 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 the best and most common argument for atheism will, will be some version of the problem of evil and suffering. Yeah. And, um, and that comes about in different ways, but, but inevitably, that's the one that I think most frequently it comes back to in the end that, that most people I meet, if they are atheists, it'll be some version of the problem suffering or evil that has um, made them doubt God yeah. or has, has, you know, um, kept them a, a, as an atheist. Um, and that can also be things like the hiddenness of God. So, which, which is, you know, why doesn't God simply yeah. reveal himself to us or something like that? Why, why, why is, but to some extent, that's that's another version of the problem of evil, in my opinion. Mm. Um, it, it's why isn't the world the way we think it should be if there is a God sort of thing. And um, so so I, I tend to find that kind of comes around in various guises and is always, I think, most difficult um, to answer is, is the most compelling, in a sense, in, in its form when it's less a philosophical argument and more a kind of experiential argument where someone's asking, you know, mm where someone's holding up an example and saying, how on earth can you believe in a God who allows this? Um, so, so I think, yeah, that's probably always has been and always will be one of the most yeah. powerful arguments. Obviously I'm not saying there aren't answers, but they ca- it can be difficult to offer answers without them sounding trite yeah. or uh, whatever. When, when you are faced with genuine yeah. issues, you know, genuine experiences like that, because I- inevitably, trying to give a philosophical apologetic type answer isn't always yeah. what that situation mm, requires. Yeah. How do you, how do you respond to the problem of evil? I'm curious as an apologist, what's your, how do you yeah. lay your head on the well, pillow well, at night wrestling like, with that? Again, the, the first thing I would say to anyone again is I want to know where they're coming from on it. So, so if they're coming from an emotional question, I'm hmm. going to give a different kind of, response to the person who's genuinely asking just a kind of more philosophical abstract question about it um but if it, but but sort of having done that and having and knowing that we're not looking at a pastoral kind of response in this situation um the the first thing i might point out is simply that the fact you know if evil exists at all if we're going to have a problem of evil then it's hard to understand how you have such a concept in a world without god because as c.s lewis famously said you know my argument against God was that the world, the universe was so full of injustice and evil, but where had I got this concept of injustice and evil? Mm. How does a man 
uh, call a line straight unless he knows that it's what a crooked line is. There's a sense in which we, we don't have the concept of good and evil in a world where there is ultimately no God, where all that we're looking at is, you know, uh, atoms swerving in the void. That, 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 that's not a universe where we have, you know, a concept like that. So if we're going to complain about it, it kind of brings us back to the very source of where this good and evil resides mm. in the first place. So that's kind of one last way of looking at it. But, but then as to the, the, the massive question of why, if there is this God of love who is all powerful and, and so on, the classic philosophical question, why he does allow evil. Um, I, I would go to various kinds of theodicies that I found helpful, including the fact that simply, um, I don't think God has, cre I don't think God's job is to wrap us in cotton wool and keep us out of harm's way. God's job is to bring us to the knowledge of himself. And that can frequently happen through adverse conditions. Um, I know many people for whom suffering has been part of their journey towards God. And even though they would never wish it upon anyone, they've nevertheless seen the way that God can use circumstances to bring people closer to himself. So I think there's in lots of different ways in which God's purposes can be worked out through suffering. I don't by that say that God therefore purposes or um, creates the conditions, but I think God in his sovereignty is able to nevertheless use mm -hmm. the, the nature of the world we live in, in yeah. its fallenness to draw people to himself. And, and I think it would be important to recognize that. Sorry, I know this is going on a long time. No, it's good. This no, is like, this is, it's, I mean, I would say 98% of people question. listening probably wrestle with that on some <laughs> level. So I, I guess um, that, that works for me with some things like something where there's not a clear evil human agent involved, cancer, yeah. uh, I, you yeah. know, fell in a well and, you know, my kid fell in a well and died or something. Mm. But when it comes yeah. to something like, like rape, um, yeah, those kind of significant where there was a human agent that could have been stopped, and it wasn't just simply life in a in the world. The natural life in the world is going to have you know um, adverse situations, um, but something like that where you have a, a personal agent doing some, I mean, a horrific thing to an innocent person. Yeah. God has the ability to stop it, and for whatever reason chooses not to. That's that's I I I don't know if I have. <laughs> I mean, I've got the textbook well, answers, the Job, you know, I, I could cite the book of Job and all this stuff. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the most, I mean, to, to some extent, uh, conversely to that, I think that those, those kinds of examples of, of evil are, are in a way easier to answer than huh. the natural type. So where there is a personal agent involved, you know, um, the obvious answer I would go to in that case, again, this is all with the proviso that this is, <laughs> on the basis yeah. of having a philosophical discussion yeah. rather than a pastoral one, but uh, would be that, um, you know, when people do terrible things to each other, it is because of this thing we have called free will, yeah. that we are free agents. And the, and the logical point is, if God were to step in at every moment where we might choose something mm -hmm. that is wrong, what kind of a world would that be? Well, it would be a world in which we are effectively robots. Yeah. We are simply puppets on a string. And that we would not have free will uh, and God allows, I think um, the cost, if you like, of the good thing that free will brings, which is the ability to love and to be loved to uh, which, which is frankly the greatest good that we can have in this world. And that in my view, that only exists if there is freedom. Um, the, the flip side of that, the cost of that is that it also allows us to 
use that freedom for mm-hmm. for doing wrong and why doesn't god constantly step in and avert it it's because otherwise we would live in a world where mm-hmm. such free will didn't exist now, i'm not saying god never does step in but i don't think god steps in very often because of this issue of freedom and and in a sense we are part of god's solution you know it's when yeah. we use our freedom to freely build his kingdom and do his work and, and everything else and right. uh, that that obviously we are the the answer to that problem of, of suffering and evil mm-hmm. but but for me the the harder question is you know more the the suffering and evil that results that doesn't appear to be from any mm. human consequence because they, then you can't use the so-called free will defense in that and that's where i would i would go to the fact of the fallenness of this world that we yeah. you know you we're we're living in that you know what paul describes in romans as the groaning of creation that we are uh living in a world that's out of kilter that's not the way it should be mm-hmm. and um we're waiting for that day when god will put everything right again and restore everything but we are part of that process now we we are you know part of that kingdom building process and and for me that inevitably that involves to the non-christian kind of ha- having to give them a kind of an insight into what the christian worldview looks like mm-hmm. um yeah. and that's not just a philosophical thing that's the thing where we're going to be bringing the bible and what we believe about mm-hmm. you know the fall of humans and the kind of even the fall of the cosmos in a, in a bigger kind of way um is is all about and uh, and so it's a huge question um and um and very often the place i'll go to for most people as well certainly on the pastoral issue is is that ultimately we believe in a god who knows what it is to suffer who came and suffered with us and for us on the cross and that may provide more actually for the grieving parent who's trying to make sense of all this than than any clever theological or Mm -hmm. philosophical answer just simply knowing that god knows what it is to suffer and is with you in in your pain um because i think christianity alone out of all of the religions out there and certainly more than atheism gives you the hope that actually yeah. there is a God who, who knows what you're going through. Well, in your first point that, that, you know, the problem of evil is a problem for anybody's system, right? I mean, if <laughs> it's not like there's one system where it makes complete sense. I mean, if you have a, a godless system, then the very idea of evil seems a little bit arbitrary or, or I don't know. I, I don't know how you wouldn't end up in some form of nihilism. Um, uh, well, yeah, I'm just thinking I've got Sam Harris in the back of my mind, think, you know, because he does <laughs> argue for some kind of like uh, assumed moral basis that everybody can kind of like everybody yeah. just just intuitively knows that that um, that rape is wrong and stuff. And, and I don't know, I, I think it's still but, a bit circular. But he, but. <laughs> he, he I mean, so Sam Harris, you know, he wrote this book <laughs> called The Moral Landscape in which he claimed to be answering the question, you know, why which he claimed essentially to be saying we can find a basis for morality in science, you know. Yeah. But he completely begged the question in that whole book because basically his his baseline was the flourishing of human slash sentient creatures. And the whole point was you were supposed to be giving us some kind of a ontological basis for morality here, Sam, and you've basically just assumed the thing you want from the outset. And the whole point is why should anyone be subject to that moral law that this is what we should desire for people? And, and and this takes us into another kind of argument for God, the, the argument for morality. But but I, I always felt that he that was just one big exercise in question begging because he had to assume from the outset that there was this kind of moral standard. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of the question is where where do these moral standards come yeah. from? You know, in your in a world of 
you know, electrons and atoms, <laughs> you know, that does not exist. There's, right. there's, you know, why should we, you know, criticize the person who chooses to live their life in a completely different way right. to you, Sam? Um, because that's just what their atoms are telling them to do. You know, <laughs> that's, uh, there's no, there's no right or wrong about it. It's just, just the way things are. Yeah. Um, so it started this, you know, and this was identified a long time ago by people like David Hume, that science will tell you what is, but it will not tell you what ought to be. That's, yeah. that's the bridge that he tried to cross in that book. And he absolutely mm. failed to. So I, yeah. I didn't realize. So he, I, he I've, <laughs> I've often quoted that, you know, the is and the ought. So Sam Harris challenged that very notion. Um, yeah. He basically okay. said, you know, he was basically saying, science, we've always been told that, that science, you know, you can't get an ought from science. And he said, he basically said, and, but here's how I do it. Here's how <laughs> I tell you what you ought, how we, how we can know what we ought to be doing on purely scientific principles. But he's completely begged the question because he's assumed from the outset that this flourishing of sentient human creatures is the, is the kind of bedrock, if you like. And he's just, and he, he, you know, and he comes out and blatantly says it in some of his debates afterwards. He says, yeah, it's kind of, uh, he says, if you're going to dispute that fact, then that's kind of, he's had some quote about it's the, um, the spade of stupidity hitting the bedrock of, dumbness or something i can't remember but but basically he was he was just basically trying to say it's just obvious isn't it that we're all going to want that and i was like well no i mean that you know there are plenty of people who've had a very different conception of what human flourishing looks like you know hitler had a very different conception of what human flourishing looks like to you sam and he persuaded a lot of people into his cause so what are you going to say to him you know um it's he was a very he was a man of science and he used science for the purposes that he you know thought were the best ones but you know most people think he was wrong about that so so science is great you know at what it does but it it has not and never will be telling us the way we ought to live our lives yeah that's good so you've had i mean lots of atheists and christian dialogues on the show and you're still a christian um again the title of your book is uh, unbelievable what's the um yeah What's the subtitle um, again? So the, ti- the title is "Why, after ten years of yeah. talking with atheists, I'm still a Christian." So, so it's unbelievable. But why, after ten years of talking with atheists, I'm still a Christian? But the funny thing is, um, I didn't realize this until people emailed me. But a couple of shows ago, um, I rattled it off, and I actually said, "Why, after ten years of talking with atheists, I'm not a Christian?" <laughs> uh, so, so I had, a, and then like people were emailing me saying, "Justin, has something happened?" Um, it was just like. It, for some reason that there was a slip of the tongue uh but no that that is not the correct title for the book yeah. um but yeah it, it essentially the book was kind of my answer at about the 10 year mark of the show to the question that came up quite frequently especially when i did a kind of ask me anything type episode of the show where people said having sat down with all these atheists and great communicators how come you still believe, you know, mm. hasn't your faith been shaken? And of course my faith has developed and changed and, mm-hmm. you know, there's certainly been some big questions that I've had to grapple with over that time. But my book was really a way of saying, well, look, here's why actually at the end of all of this, you know, these questions uh, and, and objections, I actually think Christianity gives the most compelling explanation of the world that we have. Um, and, and I think a big, a big thing for me in that was, was ha- helping one of, one of the things that kind of helped me to, to kind of pull this together was the fact that we've all got a worldview. We've all got a way of understanding the world and um, 
there are implications to every worldview and that stands that is the case for atheism mm. just as much as it is for christianity and so because most of the shows have you know revolved around atheism and christianity that's where I've, i centered this book and i simply what i do in most of certainly the early chapters of the book is i i compare atheism and christianity in terms of which makes best sense of the evidence around us uh, is the world best explained by by naturalism this idea that mm. all that exists is matter in motion or does it look like there's some kind of purpose some kind of design behind the universe behind our moral intuitions behind our sense of purpose and and, and i find in a lot of cases that the evidence seems to stack up for the christian worldview uh, against the atheist one and and then i obviously go into some of the historical aspects of christianity the case for jesus the case for the resurrection obviously do a chapter on the the problem of suffering and so on and and it's really me trying to bring together my case for christianity having sat down with brilliant minds on both sides of the um both sides of the aisle and uh, and why as the title says i'm i'm still a christian after all that so you're still a Christian, but in the last 15 years, you've had lots of other different kinds of, you know, inner Christian debates and dialogues. What have you changed your mind on um, in the last 15 years as a result, as a result <laughs> of doing what you do? <laughs> well, I think I've had a very similar journey to you on the issue of hell, actually. Yeah, Preston, right. <laughs> um, in, in as much as uh, you say, I remember reading and reviewing, actually, um, your book with Francis Chan, which came out quite a while ago. Yeah. Um, was it called Erasing Hell? Erasing Hell, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't choose the title. We, yeah. <laughs> no, but in which you, you at the time defended, you know, kind of fairly traditional eternal conscious torment view of hell. And this was obviously a response book to, to Rob Bell's book. Um, and by that time, I myself had come over to a, what is sometimes called an annihilationist or conditional immortality view of hell, which is the, the I'd grown up in a church certainly where, although it wasn't exactly rammed down your throat, that mm -hmm. the eternal conscious torment view of hell was, was the prevailing view. Um, and uh, I think I kind of, I didn't think too much about it, but I never, it never sat very comfortably with me, both for ethical and theological reasons. But um, really during the course of doing some programs and looking at all the options, you know, eternal conscious torment, mm -hmm. annihilation, universalism, other ways of thinking about hell, I, I kind of came to the conviction that actually Annihilation is both a better scriptural and ethical way of understanding um, hell. And um, so, so that would be one example of, of a place where I've certainly, my theology has changed over time. Um, to be honest, there are lots of questions I hadn't even really thought about by this, when I first started the show. So you're like, you're learning as you go and you're realizing, oh, so I have to take a position on this particular issue, do I? Um, am I a amillennialist? preterist whatever you know um and and there were some things where i i gradually you know just well there are some things where i think i i i'm more uh, i do know where i stand on certain things and there are certain things where i don't know where i stand on okay. them and i'm kind of comfortable in not feeling like i have to have that all worked out necessarily um so yeah that's that's yeah. that's kind of been the how do you how do you keep up on all the different hot button issues like every time i look at you know, a new podcast release. I'm like, wow. So he's, you know, up to speed on the latest voices in young earth, old earth, and then atheism and Christianity and then LGBT stuff and all this. I mean, do you, do you have a routine of just reading widely and just keeping up on who are the best voices out there? Or? I, I, I guess I, I try to keep abreast of kind of what's going on. I mean, by and large, often the shows 
the shows come come out in a variety of ways. Um, firstly, I get a lot of books across my desk, you know, from Christian or atheist authors, and um, a lot of that will drive the shows and the kind of topics. And, and so there's always new ideas and interesting people to have on because of that. A lot of listeners will send in topics or guest suggestions mm. they'd like to see on the show. So I'm often learning actually the interesting things going on and the, the arguments that are being put out there from listeners who are, who are telling me, you know, Hey, Justin, you've, you've got to get this guy on. You've got to talk about this subject and so on. Um, and then, yeah, I just kind of keep my ear to the ground a little bit in the, the circles that I'm sort of linked into um, when it comes to, you know, issues that are cropping up and uh, the way that cultural issues move on in various ways. So, you know, if you go back in the archive, you know, some of the conversations we had back then on certain issues kind of have moved on a bit, you know, in 10 right. years, and we're going to be talking about them in different ways now. Um, I mean, a good example is, you know, that Dave Rubin kind of conversation mm -hmm. we had where um, I think the conversation on atheism has, has moved on a bit from when mm -hmm. Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens and co were kind of ruling the roost with the new atheism. It's, it's become a little passe mm -hmm. to some degree in popular culture to the degree that you're seeing a lot more of these interesting secular characters like Jordan Peterson yeah. and Dave Rubin and others who are kind of saying, actually, no, we, we do need God. We're going to work, need to work out what we believe about, mm. you know, religion because it's not going away. And mm. even though the new atheists tried to tear it down, it turns out people need something to believe in. You know, people can't live without some kind of a, a narrative mm. in life. And, and we're now seeing the fallout from that because everyone's claiming that, you know, well, I can just be what I want to be and think what I want to think. And, and actually society doesn't really function very well when that happens. So I think there's all kinds of interesting cultural conversations going on with, you know, identity politics and yeah. critical theory and all of that stuff going on in the mix. And we've been keying into some of that with some of these conversations we've been having with some of these secular thinkers, but who are actually finding themselves sometimes more on the side of Christians and some of their fellow yeah. secularists who are very progressive or left wing um, or, uh, or kind of extreme on, on some issue or another, because they, they say, hang on, the parts of the secular world have seemed to have gone off the rails, you know. Yeah. Um, and and so, so there's been some interesting conversations on that front, quite, quite friendly conversations between Christians and non-Christians who have actually more in common than they realize mm -hmm. sometimes. Well, I've noticed that, so my, I'm releasing a book on transgender identities and, and Christianity, and um, it's interesting that when it comes to something like, you know, the, the same-sex marriage debates, it was largely a conservative versus liberal kind of thing. But when it comes to the gender conversation, it's, it's uh, you, ha you have like a kind of a, a, an extreme kind of a far left kind of trans yeah. activists, and then you have loads of very liberal, very pro-LGBT voices that are challenging that so there's a lot yeah. of kind of like yeah. I don't want to say in-house yeah. fighting, but just it, it seems it's, it's some opened people up have... some kind of interesting rifts in a way. I yeah. think I think I think the kind of there are some people who just haven't been willing to pursue it to, in the direction that a lot of the activists yeah. have thought this would naturally go, and suddenly people are realizing that they're not exactly on the same page when it comes to um, whether we can fundamentally sort of choose our identity in any way we like. And, uh, and obviously the, the major, you know, fault line has been between, you know, your, your, your the feminists and the yeah. transgender activists. And we've seen a lot of that in the UK. I mean, even most recently, stunningly, really, um, JK Rowling, you know, the <laughs> author of the Harry Potter books, you know, kind of basically being, uh, labeled a bigot and everything yeah. else, um, because of her support for this woman who lost a, a sort of tribunal, um, 
uh, employment case that, that centered on transgender issues. So um, it's a really interesting time because um, I think it is interestingly causing certain people in the secular world to question, okay, well, what, what are we standing on here? What's, you know, is, is there a kind of a truth about who we are mm. and what we're made for? Or, or is it all up for grabs, basically? And, and is there no truth out there, kind of, mm. about... about? And, and I just think that that's a, a place where the church needs to be speaking into graciously yeah. and confidently um, and helping people to realise that, that identity ultimately is always, you know, finding your identity anywhere other than Christ is, is always going to be, mm-hmm. you know, slippery sand. Yeah. So um, so I, 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 I'm, I hope that in gentle ways, you know... Um, depending on who we're talking to, the show can, can help to do that. You know? Yeah. Well, Justin, thanks so much for your time, for your book and for your podcast. I mean, I talk to people all the time that, um, that listen to your show and it sparks so many great conversations. So, uh, I hope you keep, you're going to keep at it for another 20, 30 years, maybe, or <laughs> <laughs> as long as people are listening, I suspect I'll be doing this. Um, I mean, as I say, I, I, I often sometimes say I, I the, the the joy of what I do is that I produce a show that I would listen to. Yeah. So as thing as long as I'm interested <laughs> in it, I'll keep doing it because yeah. actually, you know, that's a pretty good job to have um, producing a show that you enjoy actually listening to. So so yeah, um, I'll be around for for a while. Um, as I say, sometimes we we kind of do topics we've done before, but anytime you get a new person on, you get a new angle on it. You get, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think as we as culture progresses. Um, there's always going to be interesting ways in which we can start to engage with it. Yeah. So, yeah, and I appreciate all you've been doing, Preston, with, with you know, all of your stuff and, and the podcast. I, I frequently listen in. So it's been been a real pleasure cool. being on, awesome. the, on the show Thank today. you. That makes me nervous that you're listening, but thank you for, the, for listening <laughs> in. All right, well, thanks for being on the show. Hopefully we'll do this again sometime. Yeah, great. Right. Good to see you. Take thank care. You. Take care.